You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 392, the teeth grinding tedium of chat shows. 40 books to read before you die. Okay, we're only picking two each. And Juliet and her grandmother's crockery. It's all coming up after Talk Talk and It's My Life.
the wonderful voice of Mark Hollis. They've now virtually disappeared with no new music for over 25 years. Uh, this great track was actually released in the UK four times. Its highest position was number 13 in 1990 on the back of a best of compilation, the brilliant Talk Talk and It's My Life. Bad. Welcome to the podcast that is even more popular than Maroon 5 at the Super Bowl. It's... Wow, yes, indeed. We have hit that level of, uh, of universal disapproval. <laughs> it's episode 392. I'm Terence Stackham. And here's a woman who can tell us why she's been dancing barefoot in her apartment this week. It's Juliet Harris. Yes, hello. It's me, the Hastings equivalent of Patty Smith. Mm. Um, I have new carpets, Ooh. and oh, I tell you what, the room in which I'm I'm yeah. I'm uh, carrying out this this mission with you smells so nice. It smells of new carpet. It's lovely. That is a lovely smell, isn't it? New carpet. There's just something so satisfying about it, like freshly cut grass. It's a sense of newness and possibility, I think, and that's one for Seward's Corner in Private Eye there, I think. Or opening a book, again, that lovely... Oh, yes, very true, of which more later. Indeed, yes. Now, sometimes people look back at another era and say, oh, it was so much better then, when the truth is they are hanging on to the coattails of uh, nostalgia and it really wasn't that good in reality. However, one area of life where it was better in an earlier generation was... that most peculiar of television genres, the chat show. Mm. Here in the UK, the master of late night chat shows was Michael Parkinson. But I think even he would agree that in his heyday, it wasn't so much his interviewing skills that made the shows so watchable, but the quality of the guests. Kenneth Williams with Tales of Life in the Theatre, Carry On Shows and So Carry On Films. Um, Billy Connolly with Remarkable Stories of Growing Up in Glasgow. Perhaps even more extraordinary, though, Huge stars like David Niven recounting stories of Hollywood in the 50s and incredible raconteurs like Peter Ustinov able to reel off wonderfully entertaining anecdotes of his amazing life. Now, looking back, I think the most startling thing about these guests was that they often had nothing to plug. No book or movie. They just came along because they wanted to. Yes. I was looking at last week's viewing figures here in the UK and the top 50 TV uh, viewing uh, results, largely made up of soap operas, game shows and a few dramas. The one and only chat show was down at number 49 out of 50, the Graham Norton Mm. show. And this week, the actress Maureen Lippman was interviewed for the Radio Times and she said the chat show genre has gone way downhill and all guests, she was referring to the Graham Norton show, now have to tell... Seaside postcard style smutty stories or humiliate themselves with Graham Norton sniggering from his chair. Jules, I find third form innuendo tedious and dull and surely these chat shows, they've had their day really, haven't they? Well, I'm beginning to think they might have done. I don't. There's not a very much to disagree with here. I mean, it's a shame because actually, I do. I don't often watch Graham Norton, but occasionally I do. I mean, in the past, I used to watch it when there was someone on it I wanted to watch, but that seems to happen increasingly rarely now. Sadly, although had had Maureen Nipman gone on it, I probably would have mm. watched that. But um, there's there's something about it, like you say, the innuendo is tiresome, and mm. actually. I remember my dad, who's very anti-innuendo generally Mm. in public life. It makes Mm. him sound... He's not completely 
know, he's he's not completely. Oh, I'm with him. But it's, I'm standing but he, shoulder he to shoulder. He finds it very tedious. Mm. And he said to me how impressed he was with Graham Norton mm. since he had ditched his Channel Four late night shows that we all used to watch at university and had sort of gone legit, really, and was doing, you know, the the, the Eurovision mm. stuff and all that sort of thing. And his Radio Two show, which my parents and I are big fans, and and oh, particularly right. Graham's problem solving page, he is excellent on it, and he's a really good broadcaster, which is why. It is a bit tedious that mm. he's slipped down and in, back into this sort of, you know, innuendo kind of land. There are times, though, I've really enjoyed watching it at times, but mm. then this dates from some years ago now. But I, the thing that I do like about it was that occasionally I found Parkinson to be a bit stuffy. Mm. And I did find I did find some of those shows to be a bit you say, Oh, isn't it good that they've got that they've gone on to to promote not to promote things, mm. but just to sort of talk. All of those figures were usually men back in the past, and I do have a slight aversion to sort of me- boring old white men boring onto each other. That's that's you know that's but that was a different time. Maybe mm-hmm. my objection comes from the times in which I live. But um, but also, you know, going on without something to promote, just to sort of talk and and it's showing off, isn't it? Really, I have mm-hmm. I have a bit of an issue with showing off as well. So despite being a massive show off, I have an issue with having <laughs> people do it. So that's partly it. I quite liked Graham Norton at first because it it. It, it got rid of that and it was and it was just quite a lot of it was just mucking about and was quite fun and actually there were moments where that didn't seem to be staged and that was actually quite fun so one of my favorite ever episodes was when and this was a, i don't know years ago mm. now whoever it was that booked that week they always take a punt they throw the most random guests together it's like one show syndrome isn't it and people that have Mm. nothing in common Mm. have to sit there and kind of pretend to be interested in each other but every so often the bookers would hit upon a really good combo and they got russell brand and philoma pace sorry philoma pace even Mm. philoma faith Mm. many spoonerisms there philoma faith in on the same show and they just were really funny together and they took the mickey out of each other and they had similar East London accents and they, they had a hinterland and that worked really well and it was a great combo and you thought, oh, this all together on the sofa thing, that's a really good format and that works really well. And there was another episode where Will Smith and his son, Jaden Smith, it's Jaden, isn't it? I think it's pronounced. Mm. They, they went on and they got they uh, Jaden Smith sort of started rapping and then Will Smith joined in and then as a sort of a surprise they revealed Jazzy Jeff and they and they started doing the theme to the Fresh Prince of Bel Air which hmm. people of my generation see as some sort of you know sacred text we know all the words hmm. and the most amazing thing about it was you know you don't know if it's scripted or not but he got the crowd to do various lines and that entire crowd did the line at the, everyone knew it everyone did it and Graham Norton, they ended up doing a sort of a a, 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 a line dance to Apache, <laughs> and they got they got Graham Norton involved, and I'm not entirely sure it had been, he was very puffed out afterwards, and that was, that was quite fun, and so there have been times when I've quite enjoyed it, and it is quite fun, but like you say, it's the, it's the kind of merry, promotional merry-go-round mm. element that sort of saps the joy from it, really, it's a bit, it's a bit like Steve Wright, when he gets guests on, oh, they've mm. come in to talk to us, at least they are open about the fact that you know they are here to talk about their new film but like you say it is a bit there there is a i enjoy podcasts 
and I'm particularly enjoying David Tennant's new podcast at the mm. moment because he just gets people in to chat usually that he knows and he had Olivia Coleman on the first one who brought her dog that kept misbehaving and that just felt like friends having a chat and she actually said oh I don't really like doing these things but it's nice to see you and they were sort of having and then he had Whoopi Goldberg in this week and that I think shows that there is a future for this idea of getting someone in just to have a chat generally and listening to interesting people talk. I'm always a fan of listening to interesting people talk. But I wonder if your kind of chat show idea of your is actually now the podcast. That's a very good point, and maybe I'm a bit out of date because I was wondering Sorry, what... I don't mean that unpleasantly, but... No, I not at all, no. I wonder if this does still exist, but mm. it's just gone somewhere else. And actually, it's not you that needs to catch up, it's people making TV chat shows that need to catch up, by the sound oh, of it. I just wonder why everything and everyone in these chat shows these days has to be so light and fluffy. Yes. I mean, there's no room for any serious topic no, at all. Absolutely. From Michael McIntyre, I mean, through Paul O'Grady, Jonathan Ross, just sort of lightweight double entendre mm-hmm. seems to be the rule. And it's a kind of... A world within itself of smirking and sniggering and let's have a look at the video of your latest single and here's a clip from your new movie and I hear there was an incident with your underwear on the set. You know, let's yeah. have a laugh about that. Um, it's just about just a hundred levels from... And I do take your point with, with Parky, but of course it was, you know, of its era. But he did interview um, people like Dame Edith Evans, who was an absolutely, you know, extraordinary yes. guest. And um, yes, you know... Um, old white men, Orson Welles, Fred Astaire, people like that. But there, there just wasn't a keep, vi- keep fit video or fashion no. line to promote from any of them, you know? No, and I, and I agree. The the, the uh, promo element of that is, uh, mm. is irksome and vexing and is, is the kind of constant low-level advertising to which we are sort of barraged, really, of which more later. Exactly. Coming next... 40 books to read before you die? Well, we're just choosing two each. That's right after Sacred Pause.
I might have picked this band previously. I'm a huge fan of them. Their debut album came out a couple of years ago. Um, they are a duo that used to be in various other bands, and um, I, I just love their sound. I think it's so great. I recommended them to a friend of mine this week who then recommended them to his many thousands of Twitter followers. So I do hope that they do get some traction. But um, that's their latest single, and I'm hoping the fact that that's been released as a track on iTunes suggests that there will be a new album this year. I would like that very much. Um, they're one of those bands that they've got this kind of I always have a long debate with my friend as to whether or not using African sounds is cultural appropriation and we mm. always talk about Graceland but also on that kind of thing mm. one of the two Rachel Ags does actually have a sort of African heritage I think mm. or some sort of some sort of background some sort of kind of family background in that way which I think makes it okay and I love the lightness of their sounds and it means that it's it's actually universally appealing and sometimes it's okay for things I think to be universally appealing and I do like the fact that this song can fit in on six music and it can fit in at music festivals uh, Zoe Ball occasionally plays them on radio too uh, before mm. she did the breakfast show she used to play them on Saturday afternoons and, and they sounded great you know I, I, I think I, I love them as a duo and I, I think you know I love their sound that was Brush Your Hair but I would recommend their debut album Sacred Pause if you don't want to wait in the meantime because it is lovely no, they can certainly write a tune and I like I really like that uh, track from about a year ago Strike a Match with a brilliant oh, it's video it's lovely isn't it yeah that's really great and I, Every Day is my favourite I think that's the mm. one I found myself dancing in spilt cat food to that uh, for <laughs> circumstances too complicated to explain earlier this week so yeah I'm a big fan <laughs> these days it's sometimes feel like we we have fewer and fewer hours available to read a good book Um, not skimming a newspaper or magazine but actually sitting down for a few hours absorbed in a proper book Mm. this week the UK newspaper The Independent has published a list of 40 best books to read before you die from Wuthering Heights to Lord of the Flies and I found it hard to disagree actually with the vast majority of their list but on a side note I do wish that writers of these lists could come up with a better title than so many such and such to do before you die. I have three books that are a, that are a thousand books. I think I've got mm. a thousand TV series to see before you die, a thousand books to read, a thousand films to see, and a thousand albums to listen to. Oh, I, I mean, I do get it. Our time here is limited, and yeah. life sifts through it, our it, fingers. It is, it is unnecessarily alarmist. It's, it is. It's, you know, you feel you can almost feel the grains of sand going through the hourglass mm. of, of life. But you know, um, give me a chirpier a title, please. Uh, so, for, <laughs> forty books to enhance your life. I think it would be a good alternative. Uh, the Independent has chosen 40 books. We're choosing just two each to bring to the table. Mm. Jules, your first choice. Well, I, I've already, being the high-quality semi-professional broadcaster mm. that I am, I've already trailed this in my in my concluding remarks on the previous topic about us being subjected to a, ba- a barrage of advertising. Yes. So both books that I've picked... thumbing my nose at these great lists are non-fiction books I tend to read a lot of non-fiction so so my books are not the great novels they are non-fiction books Mm. this book was a book that I first came across when I was a teenager my original copy from the time still has on the back shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award 2000 Mm, contemporary so so this was really kind of a big book in my life it it shaped my politics in the way that I think a lot but the reason that I'm recommending it is that it feels more relevant than ever and we talk I think a lot off and on and off the podcast mm. about sort of the times in which we live and how lots of people and I think you might feel like feel like this are finding themselves perhaps more radicalized than they once thought they would have been mm. and perhaps of slightly leftier or slightly more alternative views than they mm. otherwise would have done because of the frankly the mess at which people seem to be making of various things 
Mm. So I would recommend this book for people to read, who might have dismissed it at the time, but now might find quite a lot of um, quite a lot of sense in it. It's called No Logo, and it's by Naomi Klein, who is kind of my generation's sort of Chomsky, really. Mm. And it's about basically the extent. Of, some of it might seem a bit outdated. I mean, obviously this is a pre-internet book, so I almost have to kind of give that as a clarification. But it's about the extent to which advertising has invaded every aspect of our lives and how that manipulates us and how that makes us think and live in different ways and I have to say it is extremely eye-opening there's a chapter called the branding of learning which talks about how you know how advertisers manage to get into classrooms that sort of thing there's there's talks about foreign policy and citizenship and and temps and sort of factories it's i find it so interesting it is such a well-written book it looks a bit scary and literally it is black with with red and and white kind of on the front it it looks foreboding weirdly it shares a color scheme with kid a by radiohead Mm. and these are both touched they were both i think had a similar message and they were both big touchstones of my kind of 16 17 year old self but I would recommend it simply because I particularly recommend it if that is not your politics because actually the way in which it does pick apart the way the world in which we live then I think even more so live now I would love to read that she did do an update a while ago called fences and windows but I would I would really like to read her take on things now but I would recommend this simply because I I just feel that it, it, it's saying something which we don't notice that's going on around us and it's very persuasive it's very very persuasive ironically in a way that advertising often is yes i, I do i remember when um it was published i remember that uh, many people um wore t-shirts with uh, the sort of sign no logo on them which was sort of again linked to this a protest against the the sort of major brands and the you know the kind of sweatshop ideology behind producing um expensive t-shirts where the people that made them were getting you know, two cents or two yeah, pence a, a, a day out of it so yes it, it, it's uh, yeah. but it's it's about more than that though i would mm. say and that's why i always recommend because people people always make things so reductive don't they and, they, and mm. it is about sweatshops shops but it isn't so Mm. it became about it became used about sweatshops but the thing that makes it so good is the fact that it looks at every aspect of our Mm. lives and every way in which advertising is insidiously sort of burrowing its way in and 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 again that feels relevant to what we were saying earlier on why can't people go on chat shows without something to to advertise absolutely and that that point of it's obviously still very relevant uh, today nearly 20 years 20 years well most of it is rather frighteningly it has to be said my first book um isn't a novel at all either in fact it's a travel book but the journey undertaken is so extraordinary it real it really does read like an adventure novel patrick lee firmer was uh, an incredible man or in the case of this book an amazing boy Mm. as, as he was 18 years old when he set out largely because he had nothing better to do um he set off on foot to walk from the Hook of Holland um, to Constantinople, which you know, obviously wow. we call Istanbul today. Yeah. And this was 1933. And the first book of, of what is a trilogy takes us with Patrick Lee Fermer as he walks as far as Hungary from uh, landing mm. of the ferry in, in Holland. And um, this first volume is called A Time of Gifts. And it's written with uh, astonishing beauty. We not only gain an understanding of how life was 
changing all across Europe in the 1930s, but written, of course, in a diary form, contemporary to the time. Um, But we also learn about all the sights he sees in 1930s Mm. Europe, the rivers, the landscape, all seen from foot as he walked through these countries. And then there are perhaps most fascinating um, of all, the people he meets who give him food, shelter, companionship. And it really is the most amazing true story. And... um, if you read it, you truly, you know, one wouldn't, you just can't put it down. You, you know, you just keep reading. Patrick Lee Fermer and a Time of Gifts. That sounds fascinating. I'd mm. really like to read that. Mm. And yours, your second book. Well, again, a non-fiction book. Mm. And again, I would recommend this particularly. It's it's a book that's sort of about football, but I would recommend people read it that don't that mm. don't like or don't understand football, perhaps. And I joked to someone the other day that that prior to my my current relationship, I'd almost given this to pretty much every woman I'd ever gone out with. Usually after we'd broken up, to say, mm. look, this explains it. This is <laughs> this is what it's about. So it's Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby. Oh, and, and right. Brilliantly, this is this is uh, some people read this in schools now apparently it's occasionally a set Mm. text some years which is great and it's basically about nick hornby's again it's rather an old book now because i think it was published sort of mid 90s i know it was made into a a sort of a fictionalized Mm. film but this is a a sort of an autobiographical account of nick hornby's life as an arsenal's portion again it is a world that is pretty much gone now um there's a sort of slight melancholy to the fact that most of the books that i'm recommending a are sort of youthful books of mine and b are about worlds that kind of i mean no logo less so but about worlds that no longer exist i nearly recommended travels of my radio by fee glover which Mm. is about her going around the world and going to various radio stations she said recently it's about a world that no longer exists that doesn't you know internet radio has changed everything Mm. it doesn't really happen like that anymore but fever pitches it's it's almost a history book Mm. in that it kind of maps through all of the trends in football at the time there's a long bit about the Hillsborough disaster there's a bit about Heisel, you know, there's all sorts of things but the thing that I love about it is that Nick Hornby knows that he, that, that this is it's almost my me and my friend always call record connecting the sickness, mm-hmm. uh, because it's not normal, ordinary, healthy behaviour most of the time, mm-hmm. and I think Nick, Nick Hornby knows that in a way, his obsessive following of Arsenal was the sickness and he's got various friends that he are friends because they are similarly afflicted there was someone that went on an extremely one of his friends went on an extremely long coach trip and their coach broke down and the entire coach party ended up watching a police academy film six times in a row because they were trapped for so long and those are the kind of people he admires because they have that level of commitment that he does and of course he kind of gets married and has children and kind of stops going but it's a it's a wonderful book because I think it, it is a good way of introducing to outsiders perhaps about any obsession not just football it's about obsession but it's also written from the self-awareness and someone that knows it is ridiculous there's a lovely bit where he says that he goes to see Arsenal play at home and they are dreadful and him and uh, uh, I think a lady friend go and see King Lear in the evening mm-hmm. at the theatre and he said I just I was in such a bad mood I couldn't work out what King Lear's effing problem was after <laughs> what I'd seen in the afternoon so so I know I love the fact that it's it's just about it's almost like saying to people here you know this is this is what it's like to be obsessed with football this is this is what it's like to have that level of fanaticism but I, I just and it's also an extremely enjoyable book and it is nostalgic about a certain time but also clear-eyed as well you know there is nothing to be nostalgic about Hillsborough so so it's a I would recommend anyone read it particularly if you like football it's going to be enjoyable but if you don't it's a good way of opening up a world of you know of, of, of here's what it's like to have this kind of slightly peculiar thing about you which Nick Hornby is open about but being a football fan is peculiar it was in those days anyway 
It's beautifully written. Um, that's one of the, the great joys of it. So you, I think, as you say, you don't have to be really anything of a football fan to get something from it because the, the, the way the words roll across the pages is great. And it is written rather wonderfully in, a, in an era where going to a sporting match, and in particular football in, in the sort of 80s and uh, 90s, was a real adventure because um, mm. we weren't familiar with every nuance of every team. That all we had essentially was match of the day on a Saturday yeah. night and the papers and, and, the, and yeah. the newspapers. Yes, exactly. But now, of course, there's like twenty-four hour saturation coverage. Mm. So we kind of we we feel we know well, more news, about the players yeah. than their families do. You know, so absolutely. Um, but uh, yes, it's, it's a lovely book, and I, I'm with you all the way. I, I'd it's, recommend it. It's a great, and there's a particularly nice. Um, and, and talking about the sort of nostalgia, I'd like to read a little bit from it because I think mm. this is nice. And and we've and actually this feeds into what we were talking about at the beginning when we sort of nostalgia for times and go, mm. oh, wasn't it better in the golden age of the chat shows, etc. And there's this kind of when people talk about modern football and kind of oh it's not like it was in the olden days blah 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 Guy Mowbray I think went on Celebrity Mastermind the other week not usually a Celebrity Mastermind Mm. but it happened to be on and we were watching it and they said to him do you think football used to be better and he said yes and said I'm probably not meant to say that given that I've made my living commentating on football now but yes I do and he sort of was one of these kind of pining for the olden days and I'm really enjoying Nick Hornby is an Arsenal fan so this Mm. is really nice he said we overrate the 70s most of us in our 30s we look back on it as a golden age and buy the old shirts and watch old videos and talk with awe and regret of keegan and toshak bell and summerby hector and todd we forget that the england team didn't even qualify for two world cups and we overlook the fact that most first division teams contained at least one player story at arsenal smith at liverpool harris at chelsea who simply wasn't very good at football at all <laughs> commentators and journalists complain about the behavior of today's professionals today's being the 90s of course mm. gazers petulance fashion news elbows arsenal was born in but they chuckle indulgently when they remember lee and hunter scrapping all the way back to the dressing rooms mm. after they'd been sent off, or Brenda and Keegan mm. being banished for fighting in a charity shield game. Players in the 70s weren't as fast or as fit, and probably most of them weren't even skillful, but every single side had someone who could pass the ball, and he's exactly right. We think about, mm. oh, isn't it, you know, the olden days. People wouldn't have done that in the olden days. They would have done it. It's just we took a different cultural view of it. That's, that's very true. That's a lovely passage. Um, in the most unlikely event I'm ever invited to appear on the radio show Desert Island Discs, um, where, where the host allows you to take one book of your mm. own choosing with you, there would only be one author um, from whom I would have to choose a title, and that's P.G. Woodhouse. Um, oh, yes. The, the, I, the greatest humorist and comic story mm. writer mm. that ever lived. Picking one book from his works is difficult, but I have, from 1938, The Code of the Worcesters. It's an absolute belter from the classic... Jeeves and Wooster stories. Everything is everything is here in the Code of the Woosters. Um, Bertie getting into the most sticky fix at, uh, of course, a country house called Totley Towers mm. with the splendid supporting cast of Bertie's newt-loving friend, Gussie Fink-Nottle, and the rather in, insipid gal, uh, Madeline Bassett, who believes the stars in the sky are God's daisy chain. And uh, misunderstandings, stiff upper lips... And descriptive zingers on every page. The story revolves around the theft of a milk jug and a policeman's helmet. Um, Bertie is accused <laughs> of being responsible for both, and he needs all of 
Jesus' wisdom to help effect a rescue, uh, the greatest humorist of all time, P.G. Woodhouse and the Code of the Worcesters. I, I don't think I've read that one, so I will try mm. and read that one because I do. I haven't read much, read much Woodhouse, but what I have read, I've really enjoyed. So I will try and seek that out. I think. Next, what's Juliet doing with her grandmother's plates? Uh, <laughs> that's a fair question. Yeah, that's next, right after a brand new track from the Pet Shop Boys. Intelligent people have had their say. It's time for the. straight to the point commentary on not so much the state of the union but the fragmentation of the world mm. today and in particular one man who sometime, somehow finds himself president. A brand new track from a new EP called Agenda the Pet Shop Boys and Give Stupidity a Chance. We, we remain cultural touchstones, don't we? We bring you culturally relevant things here. New two new tunes this week. Absolutely, yeah, right on the ball. Um, we're 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 in an age now where we're overwhelmed by choice. Uh, how much here in the UK that may change with Brexit? We're soon to find out. But at the moment, our supermarkets are no longer simple stores where you find basic items of food. They're now cathedrals of commerce where 
aisle after aisle is filled to capacity mm. with a breathtaking display of goods, so much so that it gives me the heebie-jeebies being faced with having to make decisions along every aisle. But, Jules, what is the connection between the boom in consumer goods and your grandmother's crockery? Well, there is a connection mm. here. So, and funny enough, we we slated to talk about this earlier in yes. the week, and I, a friend of mine from work came round for a cup of tea after we'd been out last night, and I got out of the cupboard two white mugs with orange flowers all over them. And as I put them down, she said, "My gran had these," and I said, "Everyone's gran had these." <laughs> and so, so I've got some plates that are and cups, just general crockery. That's not a hip phrase you hear much now. General crockery um, <laughs> that had belonged to my grandparents, and they were yeah, they were white with orange flowers on them when I went off to university I was given my grandmother's and grandfather's plates to take with me because I needed plates and you know they my grandfather was not long to see so there was no use for them I might as well take them with me I quite I mean I just had quite liked them that was very much a consideration that was at the bottom of the list whether or not I liked them that mm-hmm. would that didn't seem to come into it it was more the fact you know did, you know can, can you use them take them take them so mm-hmm. When I went off to university, I suddenly realised when I got there that there were two types of people that went to university. Uh, The people that were posh and the people that weren't posh, basically. And the posh people, even if they didn't speak posh, we called them posh because they were the kids whose parents would would take... They'd arrive at university and they'd go, well, we're going off now. And they'd go off to Ikea, usually, or somewhere like that. And they (laughs) would buy them everything from you. So everything they would have would come from Ikea. Um, And then people would end up having to write their names in nail varnish on their plates. Otherwise, (laughs) nobody knew whose was what. I I lived in an all-girl flat. That was the most obvious thing to do. Mm. But there was also another sort of play confusion. Those of us that didn't have parents that did posh things like that would come with our grandma's crockery and we had another problem in that we also had to write on our Mm -hmm. plates because three or four of us had the same plates because we because we all had our grandma's plates and everything was the same then and i remember (laughs) there is a social commentary element to this i remember my friend when she said well it's your plan i went no i think it's yours and she said let me guess you're not meant to be here either and there was this real kind of you know there was this real sort of there was a sense of you turn up with your grandma's crockery that you kind of snuck in if you say and i and i always feel a little bit in life like i've sort of snuck in really my uh, girlfriend thinks I'm a bit posh, but I don't think I am really. But I have kind of just sort of snuck in to mm. things. And I, 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 I'm saying that I am I'm not lower middle class now, but I come from a lower middle class background, you know. And, and, and it's interesting. That always interests me. But what it does also show is that in ye olden days, um, everything was the same. I had a photograph at university on my board that people used to come in, and it was me and my dad sat next to, sat in our front room. And I am about three or four possibly i'm not wearing glasses and my friend always jokes that we look we both have bowl cuts that were both cut by my mum i think so they are essentially the same cut and i am wearing a stripy jumper and we both had these page boy haircuts and my friend said you look like a c86 band and i always say it probably was 1986 when this was taken we were there before anyone else was but and um, everyone that would come in would look at the look at the photograph which had a fire a three or four bar fire with a grid on the front that was next to us and a grey and white and black stripy sofa and a stereo with separates on it and a and a, a, a vinyl deck on the top and people would point and go we had that fire we had that sofa oh my dad had that stereo and the fact of the matter was everybody had everything because there wasn't 
any you know there, there wasn't we didn't live in this world now where there were endless ranges of through which one can express one's individuality and again this does go back to no logo and the idea of identity and you know does this are we you know is is buying plates freeing you i don't think it is is it you know being able to buy a different duvet cover to you is that you know is that mm. exercising control over my life no it's not because i'm still giving somebody else money aren't i so so it's interesting you know to what extent is this really freeing us how and, and no logo again i think we've had consumerism sold to us haven't we it's been the the, the very concept of consumerism has been sold to us and we've been you know uh, encouraged to buy things as a way of kind of having a personality and being free when in fact there's nothing free at all about giving money for something else i mean it's it's I find that very strange. So, so yeah, my grandma's plates, an indicator that people, that, every, that, that we used to have far less choice than we used to because the fact that we all turned out with our grandmother's plates and they were the same plates and, you know, we all came from different parts of the country we came from sort of fairly different backgrounds, I, I find that really interesting that now when you buy plates and, and maybe ikea is bringing that back a bit mm. maybe you know maybe so everyone had the same blue utilitarian ikea plates so there were two lots of people using each other's plates there were just two different groups of people but it's it's interesting that you know even ikea the the, the very the vastness of ikea and mm. the different ranges means that you can potentially buy different sort of plates but there definitely seem to be Mass consumerism has has really widened out what you can buy, and I was very struck by the fact that maybe I was the last generation to do that because I went to university in the sort of early two thousands. Maybe kids going now they don't have photographs where everybody's got the same sofa. Well, I'd, I'd forgotten this, and you're absolutely right. In a small town in the seventies and eighties, everybody did have the same swirly carpets and mm. the same sofas and chairs because you didn't travel you went to the one store yeah. in the high street that, that did um sofas and chairs and carpets and things and you bought them from there and so did everybody else and so everybody else ended up with the the same things and um it, it reminded me when i was when i was a little lad and supermarkets were more or less an, an unknown quantity mm. i used to trot alongside my mother to the shops and it was almost a, a daily excursion because there were seriously no fridges or freezers where when i was a little boy so all fresh food uh, fresh food sorry had to be bought daily and now referring back to today's supermarkets where uh, for example you're you're facing with choosing one or two from perhaps a, a hundred or more breakfast cereals uh, it's so overwhelming and when I used to amble along with my mother to the one and only grocery shop in the high street there was a choice of two uh, there were two breakfast mm. cereals when uh, you either had uh, Kellogg's cornflakes or Scott's porridge oats and that was it like it or lump it um, have one of them or go without but here's the thing both about uh, the cereals or carpets or sofas or chairs or any consumer item we have more choice but are we any happier because of it i think maybe not i think there's a lot to be said for a simpler life less choice but maybe there was less stress yeah, and I agree. And we often talk about the kind of the postmodern society and the idea of choice. And it is overwhelming. How much time is wasted 
you know, going into a shop to decide what brand of, mm. of something you want to buy, how much time is wasted, does it really matter what colour the carpet is, ultimately? As speaking as someone that lost 24 hours of their life to choosing between three different shades of oatmeal recently for my mm. spare room, mm. you know, it's paralysing. It's, it's and, and, you know, it goes back to that... I don't know if this is true on an urban myth, but the rumour that Einstein used to have a, a wardrobe of all of the same outfits mm. so that he didn't have to expand any extra brain power deciding what to wear. He just wore his top and trousers every day. I hugely admire that. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe you're having the same swirly carpet as the other people. It frees your mind and attention mm. to concentrate on something else. I don't know if it's more important or not. And I'm not decrying people that work in interior design and people that really very much enjoy doing that sort of thing. But maybe, you know, maybe like you say, does this get us any further forward? Is it just a distraction? Is it is it just a distraction in the same way that social media is sometimes a distraction? Jules, when you're not dancing on your new carpets... Absolutely, non-swirly new carpets, yeah. Clutching your grandmother's plates and mugs as you go, mm. what are you doing this week? Well, I'm doing a bit of this and a bit of that, but mostly I'm DJing at the Dragon Ooh. Bar on Saturday the 16th of February. Bongo Debbie is elsewhere, unfortunately, oh. it's just me, but uh, I will be doing all sorts of things. Dragon Bar, George Street Hastings, 8 to 11pm, and that is on Saturday the 16th of February. Thanks to you for listening. And And, also you, yes. And thanks to executive producers Rona and Hilly. Um, Back to 2001 and the debut album from The Strokes, Jules. It seems to be Juliet is 17 this week. That is the whole theme of this podcast. Here's what was going on for me when I was 16 and 17. And I remember The Strokes being hyped out of the sky when I was, you know, by the enemy, which was still, Mm, you know, not in its heyday, but it was still widely read at that point. You could still buy it in shops. It was still, you know, fairly important. And I remember them being really hyped Mm. and refused, uh, uh, not being able to go or refusing a ticket, I can't remember which, to their first UK show. To, I think it was at Brighton Pavilion or somewhere like that, crazily, mm. which is like a 400-capacity room somewhere. Um, I saw the ticket there. It's a very nice room. But, um, but so... And I remember getting the album and thinking, oh, is this going to be worth the hype? And I would play it in our spare room when I was on the computer doing my homework. And mm. I remember the first couple of times the first time i thought well this this isn't much what's this and then i played it again and then by the third time i played it i realized i knew all the words <laughs> so it kind of mm. sort of burrowed itself into me and i do they've, they've had their sort of troubles in the last years and i think the strokes have always fought to get away from how perfectly formed this first record was and how perfectly formed they were the idea that them wearing ties and vintage shirts and blazers that was that was after the sort of Britpop era that was that kind of chat and after the american grunge era that weirdly kind of changed the world it felt like or changed the pop culture world for a bit so it is it is kind of bizarre looking back on it now that's very much of its time but i love this record the, the whole album is this it i think is a masterpiece from start to finish in a way they should have broken up because i i can't see how they could ever and they've been with increasingly diminishing returns at times although i know there are defenders of the strokes and you know i think they're a good band but this first album is is and and room on fire is excellent as well the follow-up but this first album i think is something special so um i could have picked any song off that record frankly but i am um, i particularly enjoy playing the bass line to this it's quite satisfying so this is the strokes and this is trying your luck
You have been listening to a DAC Media Production.